designing a spacesuit and defining the speed of gravity. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. For future missions to the moon or Mars, astronauts are going to need a new suit. Engineers like MIT's Dave and Newman are hard at work, but it's a big ask. Designing a suit that protects astronauts while still allowing them the mobility to work in space or on another planet is tough. We'll speak with Newman about the design challenges of making a new suit and how the work done at her lab could help all of us here on Earth. Then, we know the speed of light, the speed of sound, but what about the speed of gravity? This week on I'd Like to Know, we chat with our panel of experts on the intricate measurements of gravity and how colliding black holes are helping us understand its speed. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? But first, let's take a look at the latest space stories making headlines. NASA tested the fuel tank of its newest rocket, SLS, by blowing it up. That's the sound of the SLS tank ripping down its length after engineers pushed the test article to more than 260% of its expected flight load. The rocket will be used for NASA's Artemis missions, the agency's effort to return humans to the moon by 2024. The explosion test caps off a series of tests of the 212-foot-tall SLS core stage of the rocket. Work continues on the rocket for the Artemis 1 mission, an uncrewed test flight of NASA's Orion capsule on a trip around the moon. Around 5,700 pounds of supplies and science arrived at the International Space Station after launching from Cape Canaveral, Florida last week. That's ESA's astronaut Luca Parmitano capturing SpaceX's Dragon capsule and attaching it to the station. The vehicle carried a slew of science experiments and supplies for the crew, including a new AI robot to help the astronauts on board. The capsule will remain at the station for about a month before returning back to Earth with completed experiments. NASA pays private companies like SpaceX to ship supplies to the station. You can find these stories and more on our website, wmfe.org space. Give me a follow on Twitter for the latest space news. I'm at SpaceBrendan. When astronauts return to the moon or step foot on Mars for the first time, they'll need new spacesuits. Currently, astronauts on the ISS use a suit called an EMU to safely work outside the station in the vacuum of space. The suit was designed almost 40 years ago. MIT professor and former NASA Deputy Administrator David Newman is working on a new suit to meet the needs of moonbound or Martian astronauts. She joins the show to talk about those needs and the challenges of designing the next generation of spacesuits. So uh, let's start at the beginning a little bit and <laughs> think about the spacesuit is actually the world's tallest space spacecraft. That's why I like people to think about it. So we have to design all the systems we do for a normal spacecraft, you know, a- apply pressure to keep the astronauts alive, give you your oxygen to breathe, scrub your carbon dioxide, temperature, humidity control, all those things. So the, that's the kind of overview of all spacesuits have to provide absolute life support for their astronaut wearers. The current state-of-the-art at at NASA, we are flying what's called the EMU, Extravehicular Mobility Unit. And that's been flying since um, the space shuttle days and then has lasted all the way through to the International Space Station. So really for 40 years, we've been working in and and flying the EMU system as a a spacesuit. 
now we're getting ready for planetary exploration. Uh, as I'm sure you know, we're really excited to get back to the moon for lunar exploration, and our goals are set on getting humans to Mars. So the current system, though, that, that NASA has is the same basic technology. It's a gas-pressurized spacesuit. So it's gas pressurized. Uh, the, the current EMU is about 140 kilos, almost almost 300 pounds. So it's a very massive system. In in microgravity, that's okay when you're on space station because you're weightless. Now we get back to the moon and we're in a gravity environment, a one six gravity environment. So it's still a, a gas pressurized suit. It's not uh, really doesn't afford you much locomotion at all. So that gets to an alternate design that we've been working on, which is the mechanical counter pressure or a, a skin tight suit, which we call the bio suit. It's specifically designed for locomotion in the lunar 1-6 gravity or Mars 3 ace gravity. It's a very tight fitting suit. David, you just talked about how the, the EMU is the suit that the folks have been working on. Um, that's been in service for almost four decades now. What are some of the challenges to designing a new suit for planetary exploration? I mean, is this the first time folks are looking at redesigning the suits since Apollo? There really hasn't been much in terms of revolutionary technologies. It's been the same technologies, you know, life support systems uh, providing the pressure through the gas pressurization and then trying to work on the, the life support system. That's, again, the, the breathing, the air system, scrubbing out the, the trace contaminants. So it's been real incremental design. It's pretty much been the same systems fielded over over all of human spaceflight. And that goes for both the NASA system as, as well as the Russian suit as well. When you are thinking about designing a suit for use on the moon or Mars, you mentioned mobility is one of the issues and weight and being able to move in it. Talk to me about those challenges specifically and how engineers and designers like yourself can, you know, overcome these hurdles. So when we get to the moon and, and Mars, now we're, we're bipeds. You know, now we're going to be walking, actually loping type of explorers. So it really is. Um, so now, uh, in you know, my opinion, the biomechanics, the mobility, really are going there to, we'll, be, we'll have rovers, we'll have robots, but you really need a mobility system. So I think you have to think about the spacesuit design in a in different paradigm. And so we kind of flip it and say, okay, what do you want the astronaut to do? What type of you know, biomechanics, mobility, movement, and even the energetics. You know, what you kind of assess all of those to really empower exploration. You know, think of it, you'd like them to not waste any energy fighting the suit. That's the situation where now most of our energy goes to just bending the suit or moving. You want to flip that and say, no, you want to understand what the astronaut would like to do and then design the suit. We literally do it from the skin out, design the suit around the human performance elements. So those are the big drivers for us is enabling the locomotion, the mobility, having a very lightweight system, trying to really reduce the mass. I mean, by an order of magnitude, trying to increase the mobility by, you know, multiple orders of magnitude from where we currently are. And, and how do you do that? Like, I'm thinking back to, you know, archival footage of Apollo astronauts like clumsily hobbling around the moon. How do you make something that is a little bit more mobile than those Apollo suits? You mentioned designing it from the skin out. What, what does that mean? So there's really only two ways in terms of the pressure production for a spacesuit. You either put them in a balloon, gas pressurized suit. That's the current technology that we have. So you, that's why they're not mobile suits because we have a big you know, balloon gas pressure keeping the astronauts alive, but they're very immobile. So the only other way to do it is apply that pressure directly to the skin. So that's called mechanical counter pressure. And it's, it's a third of an atmosphere. So depending on what units you're thinking, it's 30 kilopascals or you know, a third of an atmosphere, 4.3 4 pounds per square inch. And we put that 
pressure directly on the skin. So if you can do that, put that pressure directly on the skin, then you can allow the arms and legs full mobility, close to full mobility, you know, wasting very little energy. Otherwise, if you're in a balloon, a gas pressurized suit, you're always going to be fighting against the resistance of all of the gas as well as all of the material layers. And have you have you been in the suits? Can you describe what it's like? Sure, <laughs> I've been in the I've been in the the NASA suit, been in the, the the new NASA suit for the the moon, the prototype, as well as the Russian suit. Yeah, they're they're big, huge volumes. That that's the other thing about sizing these. We don't have custom suits today, as as I'm sure you likely know with the current extravehicular activities, the spacewalks with, with the women that, you know, first we didn't have the right sizes. We didn't even have two medium suits that they could go out in. So that's another real increase, you know, advancement we can make in suits is that everyone should uh, get a suit that fits them, you know, a custom suit. We have the technology to do that. So there's no reason not to have everyone in a much more custom fitting suit. If you're in these current gas pressurized suits, they're, they're really big. They're oversized. They kind of, they have what's called a hard upper torso. So that's around your chest, kind of the the fiberglass um, shell, if you will. And the arms and legs are fabric and they're kind of hung off of this overall torso region. What's it like? Is it claustrophobic? Does it does it feel like it's part of you? I mean, by the way you described it, I'm kind of freaking out thinking about it. (laughs) It It's yeah, if you're if you're claustrophobic, it might not be great. I mean, you are you are in encapsulated in this big a balloon, if if you will, uh, you don't get to scratch your nose. Now, you know, <laughs> you have a glass helmet on, so there's no scratching your nose <laughs> or your ear. But um, yeah, I don't get claustrophobic in it. It's just to me, it's kind of uh, really is a completely kind of human machine design. You know, you're the human inside, and you're essentially operating this you know enormous life support system, this big shell around you. If we can make that life support system and and the shell, the pressure production you know, much closer to your body, literally putting the pressure directly on your body, then it would be much more like wearing clothes or wearing, imagine, you know, uh, you know, outfit, survival gear. If let's say, you know, going to Antarctica or even underwater deep sea dive or something like that, we want it to be much more of layers that protect the person, but not encased in this big gas pressurized shell that you have to waste so much energy to fight. So you're, you're talking more like the suits in the movie The Martian, like what like what Matt Damon wore in that movie, right? those, those skin tight, almost scuba looking suits. Exactly. That's what it kind of looks like. Yeah, they should have given us credit for The, the Martian. It was, <laughs> it was a great it was a great movie. I was actually at NASA at the time and it was it was a great book, first of all, you know, by Andy Weir. And then I think Ridley Scott produced a great movie. So but that's a notionally take a look. Those those tight fitting suits that, as you say, kind of looked like neoprene scuba suits in, in the Martian. And you notice they had two different types of suits in the Martian. That's important, too, because when you go outside of the vehicle, you know, extravehicular activity, you need full pressure production. If you're if you're inside a pressurized vehicle or a pressurized habitat, then you don't need a space. You just need a survival suit, but you don't need a pressure suit if you're already in, say, a pressurized rover or habitat. Now, NASA has been charged with putting humans on the moon by 2024. There was also a deadline of 2028. But regardless of what deadline, um, we're looking at a 2020s uh, for this to happen. Is 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 the suit design going to be ready for a 2020s moon mission? <laughs> That's a great question. I can't wait. I mean, 2020s is is ideal. I can't wait, you know, for us to get people back to the moons. But we need to be investing in the technologies today, and we're not doing that yet. I mean, we have a uh, 
a modest uh, capability in terms of suits. So what I care about is when we really go there and we need to empower exploration, we actually need a new suit and life support capability. I mean, it, it, it has to be frustrating for you as someone who, you know, works on these suits that there's not enough attention being paid to them because this is, you know, for that footprint and flag plant, you need to have a suit that's going to work, right? And more than that, uh, hopefully, first of all, hopefully there's no flag plant. Uh, I'm not in favor of that. I hope that is global cooperation. The world really wants to go. So we have the opportunity to get it right and, and go globally with partnerships. Everyone, uh, this is for humanity. It was for humanity during Apollo, but but now we can really get it right with, with global partnerships, in my opinion. And we really would like to have exploration capability, meaning the suit and rovers that really empower the exploration. If we just go there and we can't um, get our exploration down, it's going to be really disappointing. So we really should be investing in the, the new technologies that are going to empower this type of you know, living on the moon in, in the 20s, but then for the decades to come. So we're working on the research, even though it's uh, it's not funded by by NASA and they have a very conventional design, but uh, the students are excited. We can really push the, the technology. That's what I think we should do from academia is pushing the latest technology and kind of showing that to the space agencies, but now really the commercial folks. The commercial folks, I think, are actually going to lead in this in this aspect of the, the breakthroughs in terms of some new exploration capabilities, I think, are going to come with uh, partnerships with some of the commercial folks because they can think they'll be able to incorporate advanced technology quickly. David Newman, what, what's the process of going from the drawing board to a prototype? I've, I've got to think that things like 3D printing and computer-aided design have, have got to be helping uh, with that process. Is that the case? That's definitely the case. Yeah, you're right on in terms of what we can think about. And then we always have to test uh, right now in, for the the biosuit, the mechanical counterpressure, this tight fitting suit, we have to test materials. We do a lot of 3D printing because, you know, you can think about it, dream it up, and then pretty readily try to start testing some, you know, some early concepts. Um, so we really are embracing additive manufacturing. And then there's a real materials push right now. We're, we're working with some amazing companies, Boronite and Aerogels, really taking a look at not just the pressure production. We've been focused on the te technology and the technical feasibility of applying pressure, because that's the first element you need to keep someone alive in a, in a, in a spacesuit, and ours is this tight-fitting biosuit. And now we're pushing it beyond the pressure, and we're looking at thermal control and potentially even some radiation protection with, uh, again, advanced materials. So it's really exciting. What kind of applications does this technology have, not just for the moon and Mars? I mean, can we use this here on Earth? What What are some of the things you're thinking about, you know, cross-usage or, or so-called spin-off technologies that, that comes from this? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked me because we always think about what the implications are of our technology and our development. So in terms of our suits, what we really specialize is in compression suits. So we work on multiple aspects of that. And right now, the, the biomedical results of that, a compression suit, think about it actually for locomotor disease. So we're looking at it for the applications um, for things like cerebral palsy, maybe multiple sclerosis. And just um, also for, we've actually even over the years, even studied and looked at uh, infants uh, brain with, with brain damage, trauma, just looking at locomotion and movement. Now we probably can't cure the diseases, but we say, can we enhance the, you know, the range of mobility of arms and legs? Can we help someone with just daily activities, say walking, things like that? Because when we take a look at our compression suit technology, we have uh, wearable sensors. We know, you know, we can kind of quantify the motion. 
And then uh, the next element is, can you actuate it? Can you actually have actuation within a suit itself? So it really is a just crossover between the kind of soft robotics. If you're wearing a suit, can it actually help you move? And can it help your joints move? So those are what we're really excited about for biomedical applications of some of our spacesuit technology. You talked a lot about your students working on these projects. Tell me what you hear from them about working on a spacesuit that could in the very near future be the spacesuit that helps put humans back on the moon or the first spacesuits that human would use on Mars. That's got to be an incredibly awesome thing for them to be working on. It is. They're they're so excited. I uh, have a lot of aerospace engineering students that are working with both undergraduate and graduates. And also we have a, a joint program, a Harvard-MIT health science technology program. That's a biomedical engineering program. So it's really kind of a perfect match of aerospace engineering, the biomedical engineering, as, as we just mentioned, these, these dual applications for both astronaut performance, but as well as for, for medical and athletic performance. They're really excited. They're, they're going to be the astronauts who are actually going to go to the moon and Mars, not me. So it's, uh, it really is an exciting time in, in space and, and human space flight because we, we know it's going to happen. We're going to return to the, the moon. I'm, I'm actually called the Apollo program professor at MIT, but it's going to be my students that are going to be the ones who actually get there. You'll still be trying on the suits though, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, before I let you go, go uh, David Newman, you are the guiding member of a new coalition called Ascend. Um, give me a, a kind of a sense of uh, what the coalition is and what do you all hope to accomplish? Well, we're really excited. It's uh, our AIAA, that's our Aerospace Professional Society, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. And so the Ascend Conference, it really is kind of a mirror of what's happening in the space industry, academia, and government together. It's, it's the future of, of aerospace. So we're all going to come together in our annual conference and be thinking about really all elements of space exploration, be it civil, uh, military for security, and hugely relies on this new kind of public-private partnerships, the commercial folks now working with the government, but also leading the way in some of the development and technology from the academic perspective. It's just a great opportunity for faculty, students to get out there and be interacting with everyone from the aerospace community. So it's really, it's really exciting. it's going to be much more interactive. It's, going to, it's basically the conference of the future, workshops of the future. So it's going to be, I think, very educational, hands-on, and it's going to cover um, multiple generations. And then it really is very inclusive because everyone's going to be at this conference. Now, you served as NASA's deputy administrator under the Obama administration. Um, after leaving in 2017, are, are you optimistic of the direction uh, the agency is heading, or do you hope that it would be doing something else uh, in your absence? No, I'm, I'm optimistic of where we're at, really because of government, industry, and academia all coming together. It really is an amazing, amazing convergence, and the global folks as well. So we see a lot of leadership throughout the world in Europe for say, just passing the largest uh, budgets for the European Space Agency we've ever seen. NASA has its largest budget. So we really are on a good path. I think the, the focus of getting back to the moon is critically important. And that's still the same strategy that we all embrace is that the, the horizon goal for people is Mars. That's, that's, uh, that's really tough. It's really far away. Then you can have that focus. You can get great things done. But the portfolio at NASA is really balanced because there's also a significant amount for the science missions, the space science missions, 
in those big, huge science questions that we have about habitable planets and life in the universe. And most importantly, that's just because it tells us much more about, about life here on, on Earth. And there's a lot of work on Earth systems. That's again, looking down on Earth, eyes on Earth, I call it. And that's incredibly important for, for climate, climate change, looking at the oceans, looking at land, monitoring, but then also really thinking about having that data almost in real time. And so that's a huge part of the investment as well is also the Earth observations and taking all of our space data, but for use here on Earth. Well, you're getting us one step closer there with your work on spacesuit design. Uh, Professor Dava Newman is a former NASA deputy administrator. She's now the Apollo program professor of astronautics at MIT and a guiding coalition member of the Ascend Conference. Uh, professor Newman, thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, my pleasure. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Still to come, there's the speed of sound, the speed of light, but did you know gravity has a speed? Our panel of experts tries to help us understand the speed of gravity. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. Scientists like to measure things, especially speed. We know the speed of sound, 34 meters per second. We know the speed of light, 299,792 kilometers per second. Don't worry, I googled it, I don't remember that. But do you know gravity has a speed too? Well, here to explain, Josh Caldwell, Jim Cooney, and Addie Dove. They're planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida, and they host the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Jim begins our conversation answering a simple question. What's the speed of gravity? Speed of light. That is quite simple. <laughs> simple Segment over. Segment, Segment over. Yeah. Simple question, simple answer. There you go. How do we get to that? Well, so this has been something we've been thinking about for a very long time, of course, back to the days of Newton and his first laws of gravity. Uh, in Newton's day, the idea had been the speed of gravity is infinite, that, that uh, if you move the sun a little bit, that Earth would instantly know that the sun had moved and would react to the new position of the sun rather than the old position of the sun. In fact, that was critical to... Newton's law is actually working and, and providing the orbits that we actually see. Uh, but that's a little bit weird. That that means communication basically at the speed of light, right? I can wiggle it, the sun it, around. It and Infinitely fast, not at the speed of no, light. No, right, right, excuse yeah. me. If I said Even the speed faster, of light, I apologize. Yeah. 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 It, infinitely, at, at the yeah. speed of thought. Instantaneous communication or instantaneous, yeah. So that's a little bit weird. That doesn't fly in Einstein's theories of gravity, right? Which are the, the general theory of relativity, the, the leading... Mm -hmm. uh, theory for gravity these days. In that theory, the speed that changes in gravity travel should be equal to the speed of light. And that seems a little bit weird at first, because gravity and light, which is an electromagnetic phenomenon, don't seem to be related. Mm -hmm. But they are, at least in the general theory of relativity. And that, of course, has passed a heck of a lot of tests. Mm -hmm. they're, like, they're like second cousins. <laughs> yeah, they're <laughs> That's related. a good way to put it. <laughs> um, but of course, in science, Everything comes down to measurement, right? So we can predict that the speed of gravity is the same as the speed of light, but we actually have to test that. And it turns out to be notoriously difficult to test the speed of gravity. Notoriously. What are notoriously. Some of the, how would you even do that? How would you even go about doing that? <sighs> Take so, two black holes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so one thing, you know, obviously. when we... Obviously. <laughs> when we first started to be able to look at these gravitational waves, this has been a, a groundbreaking thing, of course, uh, uh, we, we always of, keep coming back to gravitational waves. I know, because they're yet. amazing. But they, they've allowed us to do a ton of things, including accurate measurements of the speed of gravity. So even before the best measurements, even when we're just looking at black holes colliding, 
we could get a reasonable handle on the speed of gravity by looking at when it arrived. Because remember, we have two different mm-hmm. uh, uh, LIGO stations, right? One in Washington State and one in Louisiana. And if we look at how the timing of when it reached one versus when it reached the other, we can get some idea of the speed of gravity. So that showed that the speed of gravity is the same as speed of light to within about 50% or something right. like that. So the one in one in Washington saw a signal and then a, then fra- a little bit later, fraction of a second later, the mm-hmm. one in, in right. Louisiana saw it. Right. Same now, unfortunately, thing. with those gravitational waves, we didn't know exactly what direction they're coming from, so I can't precisely tell you what the speed is, but roughly. Close enough. That's close what enough. we say that's in my pretty house. pretty close. If yeah. it's within 50% of the speed of light, that's pretty close. Mm-hmm. But the really awesome measurement we made was when we saw a neutron star merger... Uh, with LIGO, that we could see in the visible. So our regular telescopes saw that, a flash of light from that, and we saw gravitational waves from that. And the two signals were only separated by a second or two. And because of that, we were able to determine that the speed of gravity is essentially the same as the speed of light to within like one part in a quadrillion. Mm-hmm. Because that's that, a little bit better measurement. Because that one second, that's one second timing difference, those things racing across the universe for... Right, that thing was a billion light years away or something like that. Mind-blowing. That's crazy. Two two signals arrive at the same time. That is one close finish. Is that what the movie Across the Universe is about? (laughs) (laughs) No. Oh, okay. Um, But that's amazing. And and, and in reality, the difference in the the arrival times of those two things wasn't probably because of a slight difference in Mm -hmm. the speeds. It was probably because the light gets produced at a little bit different time than the gravitational wave during the event. But at the very least... One part in a quadrillion, right. those two things are the same. So that tells us Einstein, he was on the right path. And, and they're, they're, Never bet against Einstein. <laughs> there, there are some interesting things that, like, the speed of light can change. If it's going, th- the, the speed of light is different as it travels through different things. That's true. Yes. For gravity, that's not the case. So, so the speed of light in a vacuum and the speed of gravity are could be identical, and that one second could be also just some of at some times that light's traveling through plasma or things. That, that in is space. also possible. Yeah. yeah. Now, what really got me into this is I read an anecdote. How, how far away is the sun from us? Is it eight and a half light minutes? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if the sun were to disappear, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it would take eight and a half minutes for us to feel those effects, right? Could be gone right now. If the sun just disappears, it would take an extended sure. period of time before. Our planet basically what just flew out of orbit. What, what would happen? Yeah, tell, we, tell me about yeah. the death of the sun. What the would, death, what, yeah. <laughs> if the sun just disappeared, it won't. Don't worry, dear listeners. It, won't. it will not. Uh, but if the sun disappeared right now, the Earth would continue on the path it was going. Yep, it would continue in orbit as if the sun were. So the gravity would be the same, minutes, and, and we would orbit. still see it until eight and a half minutes from now, when all of a sudden it would get it very would dark, sh- and we would shoot off and in whatever just, direction we were going. Straight line. Yeah. At that straight point, line. it wouldn't really matter which way we're going. <laughs> yeah, it point. would be cold, <laughs> and it could happen at any time, right? <laughs> it will not happen. <laughs> it will not happen. <laughs> it will not happen at any time. Okay, yeah. well, no, we're uh, safe. Well, lowering my level of anxiety every week. Uh, Jim Cooney, Josh Caldwell, and Addie Dove—they are the hosts of Walk About the Galaxy podcast. Thank you all for being here. here. Thanks for having us. That was UCF planetary scientists, Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. They host the Walk About the Galaxy podcast. You can find it wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. If you got a question for our segment I'd like to know, send it in. Shoot me an email, yet at wmfe.org, or find us on social media and drop your questions there. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Are We There Yet podcast. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Production assistance from Elizabeth Gonder. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. 
You can find more space news online at wmfv.org space. Never miss a show and get bonus content and interviews delivered straight to your phone or smart speaker. Be sure to subscribe to the Are We There Yet podcast. You can get that on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.